And we're recording. <laughs> and we're recording. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Dan. I'm Nick. And uh, our guest today is Alex. He's in the not studio with us. He is across the, the interwebs. Where is he our first like Portland or Oregon person from like I the believe Avance so. Portland? Av- so, yeah. Yes. Thanks, so congratulations. Sherry. Thank you, Sherry, for that. Yeah. And welcome, Alex. Thank you. So technically I'm coming in from Eugene, Oregon. So yes. about a hundred miles south of Portland. That's but, even oh, better. Okay. That's even better. Yeah. That yep. still counts as Oregon. <laughs> yep. We like it down there a lot. Well, I mean, we like it. I like the roads. Some of the people we drive with don't like the police down there. But other than that, other yeah, than it's that, a it's great fine, area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. And you have quite the collection. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but with a car collection, how many, actually, I'm going to tie you into our Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. How many, how many cars are in the collection? Right now, about 170. 170. Wow. Okay. That will give us a lot to talk about. <laughs> I don't have a buying problem anymore. He does. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about yeah. where I'm at. I can suddenly. definitely afford a few more cars. Yeah. <laughs> if Alex can do it, I can do it. Totally. Yeah. That's how I'm going to take it. Um, how often do you get locked out of one of those cars, Alex? Not that often. Half the time, I actually don't bother locking it. The main issue is, where did I leave the keys? <laughs> <laughs> I can get in it. I just can't start it. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. All right. Well, for this week's tip, I'm going to talk about getting locked out of your car. Mm. It happened to someone I know about three times last week. Last week? Last week. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she a- messaged me and said, hey, you should make this a tip because I've gone through every process of getting my keys out of my car that you can think of. Three times in a week? <laughs> three times in a week. Wow. Yeah, that, that's an impressive set of skills. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to go through some basic stuff. And I'm not going to teach anybody how to like break into their car because there's kind of a liability with that. But just some precautionary measures you should take. If you have an older car, the old hide a key trick does work. Of course, putting it behind your bumper is kind of a liability. So, we does also- it, but that would, would that work anymore? Because I mean, I I used to have one of those with my '79 Granada, but the whole thing was one big piece of steel, so you could actually magnetize something to it. Right. So if you got something older, that's still going to work. <laughs> okay. And I always say the best method is to find someone close to you who can also have a key to your car, <laughs> because thieves are very well aware of how easy it is to find a hide a key on a car. So a lot, the popular spot typically is actually within a frame rail if you have open frame rails. No, oh, yeah. But they can move around and then you're never getting it back. So honestly, the best thing to do is have the buddy system in that case. The first time you call a locksmith, you will realize that AAA is worth it if you ever need a locksmith, because I think AAA is still about a hundred bucks a year, and a locksmith is about one hundred and twenty bucks a call. Minimum. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. And, you know, gas prices go up, things like that. That can be a pain. Um, The one thing that most newer cars have, I say newer, I mean mean really recently new cars. Probably in the last two or three years, this is almost standard on most people's tech packages, is you have optional remote keys on your phone. Yeah. And most people I know don't lock their phone in their car. They just lock themselves out of their car, usually a key in the trunk where they're getting groceries. And yes, you can still do that on some cars. You can do it in my truck. I can guarantee you that. And I mean, with the fobs these days, a lot of times the car doesn't let you. Yeah, but if your battery's low and it's in the trunk, it won't detect it. There's all kinds of good features here. seen that happen. Yeah, Yeah. And so what you can do is just use the app on your phone to unlock your car. Most people don't even set it up. They don't even realize they have it. And it's a feature that most people have that just isn't set up. And if you're new to this, uh, if our audience isn't just not that comfortable setting up these apps on their phone, have your dealer do it for you. Go back to where you bought the car. They will happily walk you through that because it's less hassle for them. <laughs> and you can remote start your car and check its status and all that other th- stuff. I actually went through that last night. Not for me, but Stephanie went to Audi of Bellevue and got a new car. And we, wa- I mean, we had to walk through the whole app process. Yeah, so, the app yeah. process is intense yep. on Audis. So yep. that's another thing to do. The other trick, of course, uh, we can get into all the ways they get into your car. Coat hanger, shoelaces, harder to do on new cars. Shoelaces? Yep, pull off your shoelace, put it in a loop, and you can reach down in and and loop the handle. It's kind of a pain. That's going to take you some time. I do miss the days of having the little knob like right at the window where you can pop it up and pop it down. But I mean, there's a safety issue. Yeah, Yeah, the new thing they do now is an air bladder pocket. They put it in. uh, Most police carry that. Police carry that, yeah. They have have an opening kit, they call it. And you can get them off Amazon, too. Most thieves have this, so keep that in mind as well. If you can buy it, bad people can buy it. That's right. And so you can put those between sometimes the door, which is like, and this isn't made to open your doors. It's just going to open it like a fraction of an inch, just enough to get something in there and hit that button. Of course, it's going to set off your alarm, but your keys are in there. Who cares? So <laughs> the alarm's the last thing. I'm yeah, the alarm's about. the last thing you worry about. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you are going to do that and you're in a populated area, I also recommend a tip. A lot of people forget: call the police because if somebody sees you getting into a car and doesn't know it's yours, they're going to assume bad things are happening, depending on where you're at. Yeah, because police have time to come check on those things these days. But depending yeah. on where you are, 
<laughs> North Bend Snoqualmie Police, they absolutely, have time. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Sammamish Police, they have time. Seattle North Bend Police. Snoqualmie will come pick up a deer. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to say, Seattle police, unless you're bleeding on your car, they're not going to come. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have the time. Can you bring you in the car to some place with us? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. Please make sure you know how to unlock your car. And don't forget those apps on your phone. They do more than just unlock your car. So good stuff. But welcome to the show, Alex. I would love to start out with 170 cars. Holy crap. That's a lot of cars. So I'm just going to ask you right off the bat, the hardest question of all, what's your favorite? What's your baby in that 170 car collection? <laughs> It's actually almost impossible to say in a lot of ways. I, I, the cars I like aren't typically necessarily just ones that are very common. I tend to like a lot of very different cars. So some of the cars are great in around town, but they're miserable on highways or miserable on backcountry roads, things like that. So it's really, really hard to say. In general, I love Jaguars. I love Alphas. Um, I like um, Lanchas, a lot of the, the odd Italian stuff. Um, so easy uh, to work on and easy to find parts for some of them. Yes. Some of them. No, Lucas, the prince of dark dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. The great thing about Lucas though, is they use the same Lucas parts on all of the British cars. So parts availability is fantastic. Support is great. It's all out there. It's readily available. And since it's all Lucas, you know exactly how all of it works. If you know how it works on one car. You, you are correct. I, ha- I have a 59 Triumph, and you are correct about that. Okay. But it's finding the issue or, or figuring out where it failed or, melted. you know, that's the, huh? yeah, <laughs> or where exactly. it melted. Absolutely. Or where it melted. Well, you can, it's pretty easy on a British car to figure out where it's on fire. They're not that far. They're not that long, so it's uh, kind of easy. But, uh, yeah. Uh, let's go back a little bit. Like, where did this obsession come from? Like, I always, we always talk about it. Like, were you the guy with the million Hot Wheels as a kid? Like, how'd this work? What I blame is, um, well, my mother is Italian. Okay. We would go and travel to Italy. Um, as a kid, basically every other summer, approximately. And there's a company there that built these really nice model kits of classic European cars. And I would, every time we would go, I would get one or two of them and put them together while I was in Italy. But it, they're, they're models where the doors open, the steering wheel turns the wheels, things along that line. But wow. mostly cars from the 1930s or the 1960s um, for these kits. And so there are several cars that I had that I got model kits as as a child that now I have the one to one full scale version of. So that's sort that's of what I blame for my interest in those cars. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's fun to say, "Hey, I built this as a kid. And now I found one, and if you can find it in the same yeah. color, I have a, a one eighteen scale of my Triumph." So I understand that. Yeah, <laughs> I have a Lego Raptor. I have a Lego Lots, but that's different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I was I was kind of looking on on the, the your website and, and you know this obviously you're going to Italy all the time. I mean, as a child, which just seems like a horrible thing. I'm sorry you had to do that. Uh, finding these wonderful model kits and things like that. But um, when you, I mean, obviously that would expose you to a lot of Italian cars. But I mean, did you did you guys tour around Europe as a child too and kind of see some of the other things? We did. I come from a very non mechanical, non automotive family, so I was sort of the only one who really loved. This, this end of things in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I would always, um, I like the shapes and things, the forms of the different cars that I tended to see. And so the advantage of, the collection started off largely with British cars. And part of why it started off largely with British cars was I turned up a, a Jaguar I wanted to restore. That kind of kicked the entire thing off. That car never actually got restored, but parts of it did end up going on to another version of the same car that I did actually finish. But a big part of it is the fact that the British cars had ready part support, very good documentation, easy to find information, and they're easier to find here in the U.S. Yeah. So that's sort of what kicked it off. And then from there, I bought a Lancia, and so my first Italian car. And then I bought a Porsche, and I bought a Volvo, and, <laughs> and then a Citroen Traction Avant. And so I've kind of branched out beyond that for the most part, but Mostly European. There's a couple Japanese cars that have managed to slip through, but mostly European. Now, you obviously, I mean, and you have a very understanding, kind wife, Amy, who's a big, she's a big part of the collection, of course. But um, Absolutely. She, the women like that to allow you to have one car, let alone 170, um, <laughs> which, by the way, you need to update your website, sir, because it says it's only 140. So let's get on that. Uh, <laughs> unless you just had a busy night last night, <laughs> just adding 30 cars to the collection. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it is a bit out of date. We, we're still trying to get everything photographed and everything up on the website. I'm of course kidding. There's I'm a lot just... more to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but really, Amy is a big part of this. So several of the cars are really more hers than mine. There are certain ones that she absolutely loves, and so it helps, frankly, that she has her own small collection within the collection as well. So. Her, her preference is the, the smallest car that you could possibly have with the most underpowered engine. So, <laughs> so what, are, what are those three-wheeled ones? Is it Reliant Robin Reliant or something? Robins, uh, Coopers. Uh, yeah. So we've got a Mini Cooper. She has a Auto Bianchi Bianchina. We're restoring a, an original Fiat 500 for her right now. Cool. Uh, Austin Healey Sprite, um, first generation. Um, uh, the most recent one is a um, Citroen Ducheveau. So... 602 cc's small all of that engine. huh <laughs> these sound One so of fun. the slowest cars that we have yeah <laughs> i love that your collection is a lot of fun cars too like there's we yes. see a lot of exotics collections and things like that which are cool don't be wrong it's always fun but i like the more unique stuff is there a car in your collection that is just ultra unique that you're really proud you have or one that just kind of sticks out to you you love to talk about things like that because i'd love to hear a story behind one of these or the one that you had the most fun going and finding yeah, yeah. something like that let's see um one of the ones that i have that's actually kind of an interesting one it turned up here fairly local to me it's the earliest car i own which is a 1933 rolls royce 2025 wow and cool. the interesting thing about this car is not as much the car itself as the history behind who was owned it and everything along that line. So it was originally owned by a woman who was given it as a wedding present in 1933 um, when she married her second husband. But the interesting thing about her is that she was a member of the Royal Geographer's Society. She had circumnavigated the globe um, five or six times within her life. Wow. She was a reporter during World War II in China, had interviewed Mao Zedong while he was a guerrilla leader, essentially, up in the mountains. Um, just okay. very, very interesting woman. And she had met um, a family here in who lived in Cottage Grove, Oregon, who owned um, the Village Green, which is one of the old classic um, motor hotels, essentially, huh. um, here in Oregon. And when she finally upgraded her car in 1960 she gave them the rolls royce to use for the hotel and that's who i acquired the car from but it's a, a fairly unusual car it was bought for her by as a wedding present as i said but by uh, a man by the name of sir abe bailey who was a diamond miner in south africa and became one of the richest men in the world and had given her this car as a wedding present and so just interesting kind of seeing the history and, and the fact that I'm the third owner of this car at this point. So it, despite the fact that the car is from 1933. Yeah. I was going to say it's not uncommon now to get a, a new, you'd be the third owner of a car that was made in like 2016. So absolutely. So did, did she live in that area in Oregon and Eugene in that area or where she lived in the UK in the um, UK. Okay. Primarily. Okay. And, but traveled constantly and on her travels is when she met the people um, who were here in Oregon. Oh, okay. So. Got it. I was thinking, boy, you know, you're living in Eugene like with a life like that. It's probably a little hard to find a Rolls Royce around there at that time. Like, yeah. You're going to be shipping that in from England. But if she's already living there, it's yep. easier. So, I actually have the old newspaper article from the Oregonian newspaper from when it came into the port in Portland. It was newsworthy enough that they actually did an article on the look at this old Rolls Royce that showed up off of a ship. So, and and did you say, when did she give it to the hotel? In 1960. 60, okay. So, I mean, that's a few years. I mean, so she yeah. she, put, she put some miles on it. She drove it. She had some fun with yeah. it. Yeah. That's really cool. Shipped it around the world. That's incredible. So, I'm assuming uh, right-hand drive? Yep. A right-hand drive car. Okay. Um, three and a half liters, straight six engine. Okay. Um, Four-speed gearbox. Um, these That era of Rolls-Royce is actually a really drivable, nice car from that end as well because it has enough power to still keep up with modern traffic. It has pretty good brakes for a car of its era. Um, you could drive it down the highway, and it'll go down the highway at a reasonable speed, which a lot of my smaller British cars tend not to do, <laughs> yeah. especially from that era. Side road so. cars, yes, got it. Yep. Yeah. So are you are you doing all this mechanical work yourself? I mean, are you and Amy kind of working, finding a project and working on it themselves, or are you, are you having people work on them for you? What's... 
it, it's mixed to some extent. There's some cars that I do a fair amount of work myself. I like doing electrical work. I like doing some interior um, upholstery work and things along that line, some mechanical work. Um, a lot of the cars, if, there, if it's a major restoration project, I've been outsourcing a lot of it um, locally to Vintage Underground Restorations, which it's great having actually a really good restoration shop here in town. But they've been doing absolutely fantastic work for me. Nice. That's really cool. I was saying, I don't I having the time to even do minor work on 170 cars. Do you have a collection manager like a lot of people do for that? I don't. I spend a lot of my time, honestly, doing that. Um, for example, today I drove five different cars out of the collection just to keep them moving and things along that line and then running errands. And one of them I took to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get titled. And then otherwise, it's it was mostly just going through while it was a relatively dry, sunny day, trying to get as many cars moving and driven as possible. I was going to say, that's, that's got to be, you, got, you must have to drive a, a different car or several different cars almost every day because they have to be driven. We've talked about this at yes. length at the show. And I do my best to try and keep them all driven at least once every six months. And that is sort of the limit on what I can do. Not all of the cars in the collection are necessarily running driving cars right now. Some of them are future restoration projects out of that 170. Right. Yeah. But, but the majority of them are actually functional cars. Do you have and one? I do drive them. Do you have one that's been a nightmare car for you? Like, not in the sense that it's a bad car, but one that's just like like the Winchester Mansion. It just is always in a state of repair. <laughs> I actually went I've through that, f- by the way. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a few that have been sort of along that line, where it's like there's constantly something to do. Um, the first one was my Traction Avant, the Citroen Traction Avant. The hard part with it is that French cars are a little bit harder to find parts for, and I... I got it, and the starter went out on it almost immediately, and I was chasing things on the brakes and chasing things kind of throughout the car, getting it up and running and reliable. So there's always something along that line that I tend to run into where this car just needs far more work than it ever was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of rewarding, though, because like, that's so much effort, and it's such a cool car. I mean, Citroens in general, especially older Citroens, I should say, in general, are really cool cars. They're really unique, and they're everybody, you know, Everybody looks at a Citroen, no matter what. Doesn't matter what kind of car they're into. They just look at it and they're like, "That is either cool or, or at least polarizing." Even if they don't, yes. even if they think they're ugly, they're still polarized and want to look at it. Yeah, one of they're our, wrong. One of our best car stories. I don't, were you there with with Blake and I in the parking lot when the axle <laughs> fell no, out on the Citroen? Before, I was on the way there. So we we were we were actually doing a tour with Haggerty and stuff like. We were down at the. Um, it was in Oregon. It was Oregon, right outside of Portland, and we were screwing around in his Citroen and going doing donuts backwards. And um, <laughs> front wheel drive donuts. And the uh, axle fell out, and he literally just you know used the air suspension to pull the wheel up off there. It took, it took a Phillips screwdriver, and we pulled the wheel off, and the axle went back in, and it was good to go. I have never had more fun and been in a more comfortable car, blasting through the hill, the Plus, and things like that. That car was so much fun. So. Yeah, I have. That's a great memory when I think about it. Yeah, so. classic car adventure. Shout out to them. If you right, have you yeah. ever done anything with them, Alex? With with, with uh, classic car adventures or, or Hag- Haggerty. No. So classic Haggerty sponsors with. Uh, he's, he's from uh, Canada actually. He's a guy out of Canada, and he runs this thing called Classic Car Adventures, and he does these tours for classic cars, and you will get stuff that are real classic cars. So if they make it, is an accomplishment let alone like the roads they get, send you down. They're in the middle of nowhere. And the, we did this one in Oregon, which was just fantastic. Fell in love with the back roads of Oregon. I've been using routes from that drive ever since every summer. Just, it's just one of the best driving areas in the country is Eastern Oregon. So, yeah. So, so I asked this question, probably already knowing that there's going, that there's going to be more. What are you looking for? Cause I don't yeah. think, I don't think you're going to stop. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, I, there's always kind of a few cars on the list. I mm-hmm. mean, if something really interesting pops up that I've never heard of, that's usually something that'll always attract my attention. Um, things I'm sort of semi-actively looking for is like a really nice Fiat Dino. Oh, oh um, yeah, cool car. So, actually, we know somebody uh, that just bought one of those. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> I had never heard of that car before, and it, it came across, I think, in Amelia Island or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. small world. But yeah, and I'd be fine with either a Spider or a Coupe. They're sure. both interesting cars to me. I like GT cars, so I tend to like cars that you can basically get in and drive anywhere, anytime. Um, and so I tend to lean in that direction for a lot of the cars in the collection. So a uh, nice launch of Flaminia would be fantastic. Um, I'd love one of the Zagato-bodied oh. um, Flaminias. They're stunning cars. Yes. So 
So let I me mean, let's go back a little bit. I mean, obviously you're you're spending every every other summer in, in Italy. I'm um, growing up like you know you were your car kid. What what did you kind of what do you do for a living? I guess is the question. Like you know, I mean, are you in the automotive industry or is this a passion? It's really a passion. My background is actually computer science. Okay, but my current work is in commercial property development and management. Very cool. Okay, so the nice thing is that it allows me to basically work from the most part from my phone. So anywhere that I can be on my phone or whatever. I can I can keep things going. So I occasionally have meetings I actually have to be at or participate in, but a lot of it allows me to basically be in the garage most days, which frankly is where I end up. Yeah, I just picture you like lying on yeah. the creeper in the garage yeah. like with the laptop open. Oh, yep. you can do that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gee, I need more space for cars. Who could I find to help me with that? <laughs> that is the classic problem, honestly, with the collection by size. It's yes. the okay. Well, the two things. It's the where am I going to put it? And then the question is, now where did I put it? <laughs> when you have things spread out all over the place. It's like, now what building did I leave that parked in? <laughs> That's so. funny. There's a, a collector up here, Peter Gleason, and he talked about it on his, he's, he said, I've got cars here, there. He's like, there's a few in England. There's a few in Germany. He goes, I have always have to figure out where I kept a car. I was like, boy, that's a horrible yeah. problem to have. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's a neat problem too. in the fact that you're able to find a project and go, okay, I'm going to find a home for this. Cause you know, it's going to go into something that's, you know, like Dan said before, a lot of the collections are incredible, but I like collections like yours that are more eclectic and, and more drivable and, you know, kind of what I kind of put into like a Jay Leno collection. The fact that, yeah, there's a lot of nice cars in there, but they're all drivable. They're all, uh, you know, serviceable. You can work on them, obviously. So, well, Jay's case, yep. I'll just service my McLaren well, F1 myself. Okay. That, okay. I'm, but I'm, but I'm saying like, he's not your typical, like, no, you know, it so. is funny though. I'm trying to compare the man to Jay Leno. Would you let me go? <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what adventures have you gone on in your cars? A few great trips under your belt, I'm sure, with a, with GT I've, cars. I've done quite a few, just um, a lot of tours um, with different organizations and things along that line. I've done a few times or TSD time speed distance um, oh, cool. rallies, yeah. which could be a lot of fun to do um, by the seat of our pants, or or actually trying to pay attention to it and and actually be competitive. I've done a few adventures where I've one of the biggest you're asking about cars that did not succeed the way that I expected to. I bought a, um, I bought a Jensen interceptor convertible in Los Angeles and flew down to pick it up, to drive it home with a friend of mine, the proper way. And I like it. Knowing full well, it was going to be an adventure and it <laughs> really was an adventure. Not so, where we're going to get stranded, but when, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or also so, where, yeah. yeah. In, in the first 24 hours, we basically made it over the grapevine, and that was as far as we made it. And that was because we dealt with everything from the air conditioning compressor seizing, and the belts on that are shared with the alternator, which meant that we basically had to cut the belts and had no alternator, to okay. dealing with the fact that none of the tires had any weights on them, so they weren't balanced at all. So if we went over 50 miles an hour, the car felt like it was shaking itself apart. So... Did you guys just go find a shorter belt that like Napa or something to put on there? Uh, we went to Costco as soon as we got over the top of the grapevine. We went to Costco, had them balance the tires. And while they were doing that, um, we went and bought a spare battery and a battery charger. And so we basically drove half the day on the battery, swapped out the other half of the day, and then spent the night and then made it all the way up to San Jose. And um, found someone who could order in the compressor for us in San Jose and get it installed. Meanwhile, my friend who I'm with works for a company in San Jose. So he w had the ability to basically go to work while I was getting all this done. <laughs> and then we finished up the trip. It's efficiency We're right there. To finish the trip, <laughs> heading north. And um, made it basically to Eureka, California um, as our next stop. And from Eureka, California, the next morning we started up the car, drove just outside of town, and had an electrical short that basically killed the ignition system. So we rented a trailer and a U-Haul to haul it, went about another 40 miles before one of the tires on the U-Haul trailer blew. So... <laughs> So nine years later, when you got home, so, uh, so a two-day trip took about six days by the end of everything. So, yeah, but stories like that. I mean, as much as it, it probably yeah. causes you, you know, turmoil in the. It's a great story in the fact that you know, Absolutely. and you obviously love wiring. So that means it's like, hey, <laughs> yeah. electrical failure. Let's do this, right? So. Yeah. So bought a new wiring harness, and I still have work to do on that car to really get it back on the road. It, it was a good example of cars that are theoretically fully restored, but really aren't in 
any shape, form, or size. So. Okay, you just said something, that, and I want to kind of dig with it. You bought a new wiring harness. That doesn't seem yes. like, like something that's readily... I mean, are we talking new, old, uh, never used, or what do you... What, I mean... <laughs> there, There's a company in the UK Both you and Auto I perked Sparks. up and he said, they were like, I'm sorry, new? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If, if you own a British car... And I'm listening. even some other European cars. <laughs> okay. There's a company in the UK called AutoSparks that makes factory correct replacement wiring harnesses okay. to match the original of what was fitted in the car. So your Triumph, I guarantee they have a harness for it. They have that a harness would, for I've some replaced of the really pretty much bizarre in it, stuff everything in it. So, so I mean, now it's almost yep. new, but yeah. Huh. <laughs> okay. But um, for a lot of the older British cars, um, especially the ones that have the cloth wrapped wires, mm-hmm. I usually end up, that's one of the f- things I typically end up having to do is actually replace the original harness because frequently the harness is at the point where you can't tell what color anything is, let alone actually like know that any of your connections are going to hold up or, or will conduct electricity or not catch fire or anything along that line. So, yeah, so those cloth wrapped harnesses, they actually, they look beautiful when they're done, right? I've seen some restorations where you see like the beautiful cloth wrapped harness, but underneath it is like a fully insulated, fully updated brand new wire. And the, the old ones, they just, yeah. I mean, you start taking them apart and they just crumble Falls in your hands. Apart. It was yeah. like, it was amazing. It was ever running or conducting electricity in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. When you go looking for a new car, like, are you looking, I mean, are you looking to do frame off? And, and I mean, cause when I think putting a new wiring harness in a car, that's to me, that's stripping a whole car down and, you know, with the Triumph, I've done it piece by piece because I've had to. It's as it has burned its way around along the car. Uh, <laughs> I wish that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> it's not. Uh, <laughs> but are, are you are you looking? And you're saying, okay, I want something like this. I want something that I know I can. Obviously, you can work on it. And you can restore it. But are you looking for factory new when you're done? Or are you looking for drivability? Just to be able to I tend drive. to lean towards drivability on a lot of the cars. I kind of restore to different levels. It depends really on what the car is. So if the car is something like I have a um, 1959 uh, Fiat uh, 1200 Turismo Veloce um, convertible, a okay. fairly rare car. It it came out of a it and another car came out of a field in Cresswell, Oregon, pretty near me. And between the two of them, we were able to make one finished car. But it was a pretty rough car to start with um and at the end of everything we came out with an absolute absolutely show worthy concourse level car um so occasionally it's worth doing things like that for me other times it's one of those things where it's like okay if i need to do paint and body we'll do some paint and body but it'll be a rolling restoration we'll do a little bit here and there as necessary and other cars it's like well okay i like the patina if the patina is good on a car to the point where i can use it and not worry about it breaking i'd actually rather keep the patina and so I have a few cars that are actually, they look kind of run down one way or the other, but um, run and drive exactly like they should. And I will keep them in that condition and just preserve them as much as I can. So drivability really is one of the most important things for me. I'd rather have the car be drivable and work the way I want it to. And I'm less concerned about whether it'll take an award at a show. Um, but I tend to lean towards originality. So if I'm painting a car, I'll pick a color that fits within the original palette of what the cars were available in. I'll tend to lean towards doing things as they originally were done. Leave the Lucas British wiring in, not put in a modern wiring harness or anything along that line. Things like that. That's sure. cool. I like the I like the balance you find with that. So, have you had any? So, given the la- the market over the last two and a half years, like a lot of cars that were almost throwaway a lot a lot of literally throwaway cars have gone through the roof uh 944s especially porsches because they they've had their hottest 914s are a perfect example when you couldn't give one away and now they're like starting at 30,000 if you can restore it uh do you have you had any surprise collection booms where you're like oh that was sitting in a corner and now i should probably put it up front (laughs) i've had a couple that have leaned that way i bought a uh Datsun 240Z and a 280Z there you, there you go. Yeah. at a cool just car. the right time. Um, another one that I bought in similar form, at least for a while, was a Sunbeam Tiger. Oh, yeah. Um, an original Sunbeam Tiger, which was shortly before Carroll Shelby passed away. And the moment he passed away, everyone realized, wait a minute, he had a hand in these cars. And I can't afford a Cobra, but I can afford a Tiger. And so for quite a while, the price just shot through the roof on them they've come down a little bit since then because everyone who had a tiger then suddenly realized it was worth restoring and so a bunch of them hit the market all at once you you saw the same thing also with like porsche 356s that's another one that that i've done reasonably well with yeah 
I mean, when you when you find a card, do you know if it's going to be uh, in your mind if it's a restoration then and then sell, or if it's a this is going to stay in the collection, or if it's one of those things where you go, I've seen a lot of collectors that go, okay, I've got a nine forty four, I restored it, but now I find one that's that it's unrestored, and I'm going to get rid of the nine forty four, and I'm going to buy another one and start the restoration over, kind of thing. So I often say I'm really good at buying, really bad at selling. Yeah. So that's how I end up with 170 cars in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have sold a couple cars, um, but a lot of that has been because I found a better example of the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So for example, I had a Jaguar XK150 that um, was a non-numbers matching driver level usable car. It ran and drove actually really nicely. And I turned up one of the 42 that had a factory 3.8 liter engine in it in Portland on Craigslist of all places and um, went, looked at it and it's like, this car has fantastic patina. It's really nice. It runs and drives. It's much more original than the car I had. It doesn't drive as nicely as the car I had, to be honest. Uh, there was, there's a little bit that could be done to improve it, but overall it made sense for me to sell on the one that I had and buy, buy this one because it's a rare, nicer example of the same car. Okay. And then there's a few cars that we have his and hers examples of, like a Lotus Salon <laughs> oh, and cool. Austin Healey Sprite. So, <laughs> oh, that well, I mean, two Austin Healey Sprites equal like one regular car, so it's fine. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's yeah. good. So, I mean, my and wife, I have to ask my this: is dead stock, but okay. mine is heavily modified. So, <laughs> oh, actually, let's 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 lead into that a little bit. I yeah, was just going to ask one question: What is your daily driver, or are you just driving cars from the collection? Most of the time, I drive cars for the collection. Okay. My daily driver, though, is a 2015 Jaguar F-Type okay. R Coupe. That's a cool car. So you're still yeah. having fun. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just really working on that British brand. <laughs> I was going to ask. You said yours is heavily modified. It's like, have you ever just resto-modded the hell out of one of these things? Um, I've done. I've got a few cars that are modified along that line. The one that I'm doing that's more of a resto-mod is actually a Mazda Miata with a Jaguar V6 engine in it. That's unique. So. <laughs> Not a common swap. I've, I think never, I've never heard, heard anybody that do that. Yeah. yeah. There's a company in the UK that put together a kit to do it. And the advantage is that the Jaguar V6, it's a three liter V6. It weighs less than the original Miata engine, but they interface it through the original um, gearbox and everything. So you keep your weight balance pretty close to original. You keep your handling much like an original, uh, but about twice the power. So and that, what, that's what probably the Jaguar most restaurant I'm doing. What your Jaguar yeah, what's what's the motor out of? It's uh, it's out of Engine. a Jaguar S type. Uh, what uh, about a um, two thousand three, two thousand four? Oh, okay, so it's a modern. Okay, yeah, it's, okay. A modern. it's a modern okay. engine. It, wow. Ford used the same engine or a similar version of the same engine, but not quite as advanced. They used it primarily in front wheel drive applications. I was say, so the only rear wheel drive was the Jaguar. That was the Ford days of Jaguar, right? Ford owned Jaguar yes. at that time. Okay, that's yeah, that's a cool swap. I never heard of that ever. I've, I've heard of some so, people putting the the, the V8s and V8s. Yeah, flying Miata conversion. And when you have to, you know, you yes. got to bend the, the little bit of the, the yeah, firewall yeah. back to get it in there. But uh, <laughs> literally, yeah. sledgehammer to the firewall. Yeah. That's the instructions. I learned that Bang from Stacy Keach on the on the show <laughs> Gears once one Sunday morning. Yeah, I know a yeah. couple people have done that. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, putting bigger engines in a Miata is like the new version of a Sunbeam Tiger. It's like, you know, they took, they took a Triumph and they put a bigger engine in it and went, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah. And the so funny thing the is older that... Version, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So the older version of that that I have is a Seattle Dyna, so an Italian car from the um, early 1950s that in the period had a Studebaker V8 put in it. So it's a very period hot rod. So... Also a fantastic. Is it like a moonshine Italian <laughs> moonshine running Italian car? I'm I'm noticing a lot of the uh, and maybe this is something in your collection as far as uh, like a lot of these Italian uh, you know body makers, but um, you know like Pantera and I'm seeing Iso Grifos are coming out of the woodwork all of a sudden and I don't know why. Like oh, we'd never seen the brand. I mean Dan and I have seen it a ton because we've been down at Concorso and things like that. But yeah, these type of things. Are, do you like those type of cars where you've got an Italian styling but you've got American? muscle kind of under the hood i i do actually the the iso i would love to get that's actually on my list of cars that you're asking about earlier okay. is an iso revolta yeah yeah um rather than necessarily the grifo the grifo is a beautiful car as well but the revolta sort of fits in that that gt everyday usable but 
American V8 as in something unusual. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's one in Haggerty Garage and Social. I yeah. won't name the member. One of but each, actually. Yeah, one of yeah. each, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. With the LS, uh, with the with the 427, the LS7 in it, actually. It's a beautiful car. Beautiful what do you think? Car. I actually haven't never seen the hood popped. It yeah. is, because it's got the 7. It's got. <laughs> oh, it's an right. original. and has that's the actual right. badge. It's a, got it. Yeah. yeah. Nicest interior I've ever seen in a car. But anyway. Yeah, um, you you have some newer stuff. I think I think the newest yes. car in your collection I saw was the the Alpha Four C, right? The Alpha Four C is well, the Alpha Four C or the Morgan Three Wheeler. Although the Morgan Three Wheeler hardly counts. So, <laughs> so cool, though. I think that counts. Yeah. that definitely yeah. counts. Yeah. yeah. So it, the Morgan Three Wheeler is a 2017. The Alpha Four C is a 2016. So those are probably the two newest that I would consider part of the the classic collection or classic exotic collection. Did you did you buy them so, both new or did you acquire them after? The Morgan we bought new. Um, the Alpha I bought secondhand. I actually went to go buy one in 2020 as soon as I heard that they're discontinuing them because it had always been on my list of of cars that just it's a unique, interesting car. It's hard to find a, a car with fiberglass chassis or sorry, not fiberglass, a carbon fiber chassis that is in that price range and that you could basically get in and drive and just absolutely love driving and. Um, I went to go buy one and was told that basically the one dealer in Oregon did not have one, would not get one, and wasn't even on the list to receive one in the future. So I basically missed my chance to buy one locally. And so I was looking um, off and on essentially for one on the used market and turned one up in just outside of Salem. Oh, nice. And is it, is it Cooper Spider? Or not Spider? Mine's a Spider. Spider, okay. No, I, I think they're absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Um, I, yeah. it, I think it, it's there's such heritage there because when you, you look at it and you go, I mean, it's a baby 8C pretty much. And I mean, yeah. 8C prices are ungodly. <laughs> so, I mean, being able to get into, like, I mean, I mean, I remember watching stuff when that first came out in that, in that carbon tub and I'm thinking, are you really want to, at that price point, like that's that's very doable for a lot of people. So Yeah, I want a dream to drive too. Right? Yeah. 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 And for the sports cars, it really fits in the realm of what I tend to really like. Um, which admittedly my Jaguar F-Type doesn't really, which is it's okay to have a smaller engine, but have as light a car as possible so that you have that very nimble handling that, that you get with the Alpha 4C. It's the same type of thing you tend to get with Lotuses um, and things. But a lot of the other cars, like um, I've got a, a Ferrari 550 Maranello, which is a fantastic car to drive, but it feels like a heavy car to drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing I love about the 4C is that it feels very much like a light, nimble, sporty car, and that's what I like about a lot of the classic cars too. Is that they may have small engines or whatever, but because they're lighter weight, and, and with an emphasis on handling, they tend to be a lot of fun to drive. Yeah, oddly the uh, the the Jags, the, the F types is, is, is what I'm referring to, and the uh, Aston Martins and the 550 Marlboro. They're they're really um, they're muscle cars. Absolutely. When you drive them, they they really they don't you don't get in them and think like um you know spirited touring back road car. You think like it's this or a Mustang or a yep. Camaro, and they really yeah. actually drive similar. And people don't think they do, but they really do. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. They're a ton of fun to drive. They drive well, but they they're not as nimble as people would think. It's it's the the small stuff still, especially the Lotuses though. All Lotuses drive well. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. except when uh, what happened to when um. When they spun, they spin, lose a rear. Uh, oh, there's only one <laughs> bolt connecting the the lower rear lower control arm, and then when it shears, the whole wheel just comes off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. yeah that's, you know. Do other you, than that, great yeah. cars. Yeah. <laughs> well, two bolt two bolts would add weight, which would detract from performance. There you go. So that really is the absolute thing with Lotus. Yeah, but as to be fair, you having it. your wheel fall off detracts from performance too. So. Uh, <laughs> yes, but not until it falls off. <laughs> no, of course, it's an until situation. But yeah, agreed. Do you, what Lotuses do you have in your collection? I'm just personally curious. I'm a big Lotus fan. So it starts with a, a Type 14 Lotus Elite. Oh, cool. Um, so the original road-going Lotus. Yeah. And then I have the two Lotus Elans, both Series 2 cars, actually. So um, Type 26 earlier Series 2 cars. Um, I have a um, Series 2 Lotus Europa. And then a Lotus Esprit, a, a, a a 1993 Lotus Esprit. Is and that then the a, twin turbo V8? Uh, no, that is the turbo four cylinder still. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then a 2014 um, Lotus Avora S. Ooh. And then the last one that I have, which I need to put back together 
um, I got it in pieces, but it's it's one of my future projects to some extent. It's painted. It's mostly just needs assembly now. Is a Lotus Salon um, Plus Two. Cool. So. I like that you have the full gambit on like everything. You have the, the if you want to go new and just go like a grand touring car, pack the you know room for bags in the back. For people who don't know, you can go do that. Go hit up those fun roads in Eastern Oregon if you want to just cruise in something so classic and style that people won't recognize. And most people will not recognize any vintage Lotus or any period. They're just like, what is that? <laughs> so I think I at the it. most I've had four cars and sometimes I forget which cars I have. This man has 170 and just rattles them off. Like, I know. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I, unless he's got a whiteboard in front of him that we can't see. He's like, okay, what cars do I own and where are they? Yeah, like, get a spreadsheet up on exactly. it. <laughs> I literally do have that spreadsheet. It's not open right now, but I do literally have that spreadsheet. It's the, where did I park that? When did I last drive it? I mean, th- this is a big part of how I maintain it is tracking. When did I last drive it? When did I change the oil? How old is the battery? Things along that line. So, so I have yep. a question for you that was uh, given to me by uh, one of our listeners, and, and I was talking about who we were going to interview and, and what, that you're a collector and that you're kind of a, an eclectic collector. And she yeah. goes, how do you insure that many cars? Like, how does that work? I mean, because you're not driving them all. I mean, they need to be insured while sitting there. But, I mean, how, could, if, can you give us a little bit into that as a collector? Like, how does that work? Uh, Haggerty is my friend. There you um, go. There you okay, go. yeah. yeah. Customer, to be honest. They're all of our Oregon. friends, but yeah. 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 So um, I've kind of explored the idea to some extent. I, I've talked to them about the fact that it's like, okay, there's only my wife and I. I have 170 cars. I can't drive them all at once. And so there's, there's a factor in that I think the pricing that they're giving me related to that. And um, it is one of those things where... I pointedly keep the cars in different buildings. I haven't tried to find one giant building that I can put everything in. Um, from an insurance perspective, that's a really good thing. So um, I basically just insure them one at a time through Haggerty. Okay. So nice. Okay. That's. I mean, I, it was always it was a question that I didn't have in the back of my head. I'm like, that's a good point. Like, yeah, fire. You know, fire destroys a lot of collections. We've Absolutely. seen it many times over the years. He just really wants the multi-vehicle discount. I think is what it is. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sir, when you reach 175, you get a <laughs> done. And here's a t-shirt. Yeah, you get a free t-shirt. Yeah, so pretty much. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, which one are you driving the most? You think, is there one you go back to? And I know we asked you if you had a favorite, but I guess this is sort of a different question because there's a lot of cars we drive that aren't the favorite, but is there one you yeah. find yourself going back to all the time? Uh, I, a lot of the alphas tend to be sort of in that category for me. Um, one I was driving today is my Alfa Romeo Giulia um, Sprint. Oh, cool. So it's a, a two-seater, or well, it's technically a four-seater car, but it's a two-door um, coupe. Um, Scaglietti design body, just one of the most beautiful Alfa Romeos ever made. And very, very drivable, very usable. And mine being a Giulia, it has a 1600cc motor and a five-speed gearbox. It's just one of the most pleasurable cars to drive in just about any circumstance. So that's definitely one that's high on my list. The car I drive the least is probably my 1935 Morgan three-wheeler, which is the worst car I have to drive. It has two pedals, a hand throttle, and a non-synchro gearbox. And so you're shifting a non-synchro gearbox, double clutching, with a hand throttle. And it is uncomfortable. There's no place to put your feet other than on the pedals. And so that's probably the one I drive the least out of the collection. But it's otherwise... going to make a great ad when he sells it yeah. someday. This car, it's a, it's a pain to drive. You don't want to do that. But uh, yeah. Yeah. it's basically a motorcycle, but I'm not going to tell you. But that. harder to drive. <laughs> harder to drive. It has more wheels, yeah. and it's harder to drive. Yeah. It's a car with yeah. a suicide shift. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's That's what he, when he goes hand throttle, I'm like, that's a motorcycle. Like, I'm like, oh, it's a Morgan. Never mind. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. What engine is on that, out of curiosity? That has a uh, matchless MX-4 motor. So it's a water-cooled version of the matchless uh, motorcycle engine. Okay. So it's water-cooled heads. Huh. And what, what is powering the new Morgan that you've got? The new Morgan is an S&S V-twin. Ah, there it is. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, knew, I knew there was an S&S in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. Okay. They're so cool. That's one of that's a very unique thing to have. Any Morgan three wheeler is unique, let alone a vintage Morgan three wheeler. I mean, there's unique, and then there's that. Do you have any other cars in your collection that you find uh, like particularly unique, or that people would just you, most people have never heard of? And I'm sure you have a few, but is there a few that just jump out of like this is something nobody's ever seen? 
I've got a Knot L3 sports racer. You, yep, you uh, were correct. One of three made. <laughs> I don't even know what that <laughs> exactly. is. Exactly. I was like, I was like oh, so, what? Sure, Knot. Hold on. I'm definitely not Googling that. So uh, it is, <laughs> it's a British car. Okay. Um, uh, they were built shortly after World War II. And um, this the sports racer is one of three made. They did a, it's a, technically a road car. It's built as a road car, but um, also intended to be used as a track day car. And the one that I have raced in 1951 at Watkins Glen, and then in 1952 at Bridgehampton. So it won its class at Watkins Glen. So period race car, pretty well documented. Um, just from from new and everything i have actually a book on Connaught specifically that talks about my car specifically as the first of them made and it getting shipped to the united states to race so it's built around the lee francis engine which is a pre-war twin cam 1.8 liter four cylinder um and it's sort of your traditional cigar shaped body in a lot of ways with cycle fenders just a fairly unusual um rare car one of the other interesting things about it is that the switch gear in it for all of the, the power and everything came out of surplus um, British Spitfires. So so it has oh, like the World War II era Spitfire switches, say, okay, airplanes. Yeah. Okay, not, yeah. not, not, the, not the Triumph car. But <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah, fair. fair. Yeah. So, okay. But out of airplanes. So they all have the um, British um, Crown GR um cast into the plastic for them and everything and so a, kind of an interesting fun car i've barely driven it because i need to get some mufflers on it so as a race car or, or built as a race car it basically had um straight exhausts or straight exhaust pipes but i'm sorting that out right now so um i've driven it around the building but i haven't actually taken it on the roads yet so well, that's cool at least a car like that though you could probably just clamp on mufflers right that old style is just two piece yeah i can picture the the body now i have no idea what it is i love that i don't know what yeah. it is i love finding stuff like this out <laughs> so that's a very cool example yeah. I, I, again the knowledge base that is in this man's head is incredible i know I'm like because it's one thing to be able to like oh yeah I, i've met collectors like yeah i own that car what's in it uh, i don't know i own that car like i mean you've said words multi-syllable words tonight that I have <laughs> which is great I, I always love learning something new like I will definitely be googling some of these yeah. things tonight yeah I wish we could so, be down there with a camera to see some of this I collection because it, it sounds absolutely fascinating I would love to hear the stories as you talk about the cars like be with you and actually have you tell us this stuff it's so interesting yeah, yeah. but so, what were you saying a you big were, part yeah, sorry. A big part of what attracts me to a lot of the cars is the mechanical engineering and things. So I tend to like cars that have unusual features one way or the other um, in design or in, in the way that they're built. Um, cars that are sort of firsts or, or sort of unusual setups. Um, I have uh, another um, pre-war car I have is a BSA Scout, which BSA is the motorcycle manufacturer as well as Birmingham Small Arms. They also make typewriters. But it's a front-wheel drive um, four, or four-wheeled car that BSA made pre-World War II. But it's one of the earliest front-wheel drive cars I own. And so things like that tend to be interesting to me just for, the, for that. The Classic Mini being one of the first transverse-engined cars. I have a Lancia Relia um, B20 GT, which is another car I absolutely love driving. Um, but that's the first car with a production V6 and one of the first with the rear transaxle. So things like that tend to be part of what attracts me to some of these cars as well. Not going to lie, when he speaks, it's like word porn. <laughs> it's just, it, there's such an elegance, by the way, and he's the accent and the pronunciation is incredible. So, uh, you know, Dan and I have spent a lot of time around people at Concorso where, and you're going, that's not how that's said. Even I know that. <laughs> so, no, but I, uh, I don't mean to, <laughs> to take that up, but I'm like, could listen to him talk for a while <laughs> i just love nice. interesting yeah. car stuff like that like the, right? like you said the engineering of some of that stuff is just absolutely fascinating to me it's almost more fascinating to why why they don't use it anymore yeah or why they did yeah. it at the time there's always a good there's always a good reason at the time that they did it and you don't and now you, there's a lot of stuff you look back and you're like that seems like a terrible design but at the time there was a good reason i guarantee you nobody who made those cars was an idiot because they made cars they just didn't age well there's a lot of cars yep. that were idiot designs that continued to make idiot designs. That was 70s. Yeah, I understand. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. now, now, fins will always be in style, good sir. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, well, the majority of. Good. Yeah. So, the majority of cars I own are actually older than I am. Um, I'm 45, just as a reference. But the main problem with being 45 is that most of the cars I grew up with 
were cards you don't want to own. So <laughs> I'm actually quite happy that the majority of the cards that I have interest in actually predate me. So minus the fact that it's undrivable, I'd take a Kuntosh or a Testarossa. But I mean, that's you know, because we're we're both what forty? We're forty-two. We're forty-two. We're 42. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are exceptions. Actually, yeah, no, I'm that. with you, but uh, you're you're right. The the, the cars yeah. of the, the the late seventies and eighties, there just there wasn't a lot that stood out, and you went, you know. Well, I, I want that. Well, even if they were really cool cars, and there's a lot of really cool cars from that era, I, I would say this one is the perfect example because the Bandit Trans Am is awesome until you realize it has 170 horsepower and a zero to 60 in nine seconds. And there's like, it's one of the most unreliable, inefficient cars ever made. <laughs> That's why we don't talk about the 69 Charger because I grew up with the Dukes of Hazard. Oh, and yeah. It, and it flies and it can really fly in real life and it's not heavy and it's not underpowered. <laughs> right. And it and doesn't for- do this immediately as soon as it goes <laughs> It definitely will not lawn dart. I saw it on the show. It worked. It's only the cop cars that crashed. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, you know, everybody I know who has the cars from this era and loves them, they're like, yeah, but they handle terribly. The brakes don't work and it's terribly unreliable. And the plastic was that early plastic that just like cracked for no reason. They're like, well, why did it crack? Because it's plastic and you it was made in the 70s. It. You looked at it wrong. <laughs> so yeah. It's just crumbling apart. But they had style. I'll yeah. give them that. Well, so, yeah. Do you have any American cars? Like, Oh, yeah. Your collection? Technically, the closest I come is uh, Nash Metropolitan, but that's, that was built in Britain. Close. Yeah. So, so it was, still counts. Yeah. 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 Uh, tell us about the Japanese cars. You mentioned the 240Z. Very cool. Everybody loves so, the 240. I've got the 240Z and a 280Z, and then um, a couple more recent ones, actually. Uh, uh, Mazda RX-7, uh, first generation, uh, uh, GSL-SE, so uh, um, 1985. So if you inject it in 85, right? Yeah. So fuel injected, yeah. yeah. And then um, the other odd one is a Subaru SVX. Oh, that's a cool so, car. I wanted one of those so bad. I mean, the windows on it alone, I remember. Yes. Like, I loved that car. I'm a huge Subaru fan. I still, to this day, drive a Subaru. But, I mean, you talk about a car that you instantly said that, and it took me back to my childhood. I'm like, I remember that car. That's such a cool car. <laughs> so Exotics at, Redmond, Exotics at Redmond Town Center, the show up here, which congratulations to them on their massive opening day, biggest one ever. I wrote the original rules for that because it's an Exotics car show, and there was a bunch of back and forth, and you can get into that at a different time. But one of the only cars I put on there under Subaru, I was like either right-hand drive, full rally cars, or the one guy with the S- who shows up with the SVX because it's like showroom new. And it's, I was like, I don't care what he says. I'm letting that car in. Because everybody looks at it and goes, what is this? You don't see any of them beat up. <laughs> you like, never I've, seen I've never seen them. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a ton of like the Justies and the old Impresses beat on the side of the road. But SVXs, for some reason, were just cared for. It's like my neighbor across the street growing up had like one of the original Ford probes. like the, the <laughs> And I mean, like it was immaculate. Like, yeah. but, you know, like, but yeah. Where'd you find your SVX out of curiosity? It actually was a locally owned car. I'm the second owner of that car as well with 40,000 original miles on it. So wow. it's very much in that class. Yeah. I did end up repainting it mostly because it had the classic um, uh, 1990s paint that all the clear coats started peeling off on yep. its own. Yeah. Essentially. So I fixed that and then put a manual transmission in it. No, Ooh, that's, that's, cool. that's Subaru's weight savings where the, where the clear coat peel, peels <laughs> off. That helps you. So, yep. yeah. Very yeah. cool on the manual so, transmission. Uh, what color is yours? Mine is um, the um, dark green, the forest green. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I love so that metallic. I was remember so, green and then like that blue. that blue or there was a purple, like a bluish purple or purple kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, there was a my, I remember and white. <laughs> I remember begging my parents to buy one of those, yeah. and which they didn't get, of course, because they had three kids and that would have been really stupid. But I was really young. And when those first came out, I thought they were so cool. It's funny because I look at that and I think I could drive that car, but then I like I think you look at some of like the smaller ones like Countach and the DeLorean and the windows, and you're thinking, I mean, those are toll windows. That's all those are. It's like <laughs> you can get your hand up. You couldn't bring a milkshake inside the car. You couldn't, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that was. What year did those come out? Like DeLorean is 1981. No, no I meant the SVX, 80? but yeah, DeLorean too. Oh, the yeah. SVX. The yeah. SVX I think was 93, 93? 96, okay. if yeah, I remember correctly. Years. Well, yeah, because I mean, I remember that's and that's when they really introduced that the legacy and then the legacy wagon. I had a '92 legacy wagon. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Wade Carter, if you're listening, beg Subaru to bring the SVX ba- SVX back. Yeah, Subaru needs to bring back a two door sports car. Besides, I mean, I know they have the BRZ FRS thing, but I want an all wheel drive two door sports car that's not a hundred thousand dollars. If only we knew somebody that buys a ton of cars and then does things to them. Hi, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> We're best friends now, so he can build that. <laughs> I'm, 
I I also love Subarus, and I've had a number of Subarus as daily drivers. Sure. So yeah, sure. we do too. Well, yeah, <laughs> I just bought a 2022 Wilderness, and I I st- it's, okay. It's still I'm, people are like I'm like it's a Subaru, but I still stop and stare back at it every time. So yeah, yeah. There's a passion to that, but okay. I mean, obviously the the RX7. I mean, is that was that a that's that's got a rotary, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All, okay. all okay. RX7s. I'm just sure. Yeah. yeah just, you, Dan's a big RX7 guy, so I so I always yeah. push my questions to him, yeah. but. Um, Rotary okay. Experimental 7. That's right. <laughs> oh, wow, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. No, Excellent. That, that said, it's not my only Rotary. Okay. My, my first Rotary, my earliest Rotary, is actually an NSU Spider. Oh, cool. Which is the original Rotary. Yeah. The first car to get a ro- Rotary engine. And it's about a 500cc single rotor. Um, uh, just beautiful little car. Absolute blast to drive. No power down low. But once it gets moving, it just drives beautifully. So Yeah, you kind of drive it like a two-stroke motorcycle. Okay. Pretty just much. Stay up in the RPM range and it'll go. Yep. Yeah. Huh. They're really cool. The only reason I know that car is because I had an RX-7, and so I wanted to know everything yeah. rotary. So No, you you needed to know everything rotary. Yes, I did. I had an FD, <laughs> so I different. really needed to yeah. know everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fix all the time. Yeah. <laughs> is it running? How yeah. long? Eventually. Eventually running. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, with your love for cars, is there anything new that's out there? That not necessarily you want to put into the collection, but really, you know, sparks your interest? Future collection? I don't know. Um, I mean, that was sort of the Alpha 4C for me in yes. a lot of ways. Um, as I said, I sort of missed the boat on that one as far as actually getting one brand new. But I'm very happy with the one that I have. And it still is an absolutely fantastic car. I don't know. I haven't been paying that much close attention to most of the newer cars. Um, again, being a classic car person and having a lot of classic cars, I tend to like cars I can work on. And sure. most of the newer ones, I, I really can't. So, they don't want to. It's too much plastic. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want the you to is the problem. Yeah. yeah. The F-Type was sort of that for me as well. I saw it at the San Francisco Auto Show. Um, I was down there for Thanksgiving visiting family and went to the Auto Show at, when they first debuted. It, I think it had been shown in L.A. beforehand, but when they first debuted in the U.S., the F-Type Coupe. And I'm like, that is the most beautiful car Jaguar has made in a long time. And it's the closest thing to what I actually think of as a Jaguar that they've made in a long time. And so I pre-ordered one before I could get one in Oregon. I was I got the first or second one to come to the state um, because I absolutely was going to have and drive that car. And I, I do love it, but it's a very different car compared to some of the others. So, Yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Jaguar has been known to be certain other people who owned, I don't know, Ferrari called Jaguar the most beautiful car in the world. I think that was the XK, yeah. Yeah. XKE or XK? XKE. Yeah. The E-Type, so, yeah. Yeah. It's E-Type, yeah. So yeah. I don't disagree. You type there, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 So amazing. Well, being uh, your, you said computer science background, right? Yes. Or engineering. What was it? Computer science. Computer science. What do you think of the uh, electrification it's, it's interesting. The biggest problems that I see is I don't have a good place to charge it everywhere I go. Um, it's, I've got a condominium in Portland. If I, had a, if I had the ability to charge an electric car at home and at my condo in Portland, I would be driving an electric car today. Oh. Um, for the environmental impact reasons, if nothing else. Um, I, I view the classic cars as sort of an environmentally positive thing because I'm not throwing away yet another car and recycling it. Um, but um, for just commuting back and forth to Portland, I would love to have an electric car as an option, but I just can't charge it at my condo up there. And there's no good way to retrofit a charger into the older building. And I see that being sort of our problem with electric cars, if we're relying on charging as our primary source, is that it's great if you have a single-family home to be able to put in a charger. But when you start looking at people in apartment complexes and the power requirements required to be able to charge all of the cars in an apartment complex at once, we don't have the supply to the property big enough in a lot of places to be able to meet that demand. So um, I think that we're, that there's definitely positive things to do from that end. And I'm not against the idea of exploring electrifying older classics as well, um, doing the retrofit, but, it would depend really on the classic for me. So uh, cars that they built um, millions of, sure, go right ahead. You're not necessarily destroying a one-off unique piece, but if it's something where, where it's a very rare, very unusual car in good shape, I don't see a reason to convert it. 
Well, let alone some of the older cars that are meant to be lightweight and fun. You pack a bunch yeah. of batteries into them, it's going to weight them down a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And those are, like you said, you're upcycling anyway. A lot of those cars, have they're driven so little, period, you have zero environmental impact <laughs> compared yeah. to buying yeah. a new car. So, the, yeah, I love your take on that. And, yeah, you, you point out a, a really good point. I never thought about that, the grid implications of, like, an apartment building, which... It's sort of a, a mixed bag. Like you could probably do it in a major metropolitan area with a massive grid, but that doesn't work. And there's still apartments in small towns. Well, you're <laughs> seeing it like in, in downtown Bellevue, my parents' condo, like they put in five chargers. Like that was big. But there's like, I think 65 electric cars that live in the building. <laughs> so it's a little, <laughs> which causes like a, a bunch of issues with people that, you know. And so, I mean, I, and I get that. You're right. That's, it's the grid. I mean, everybody goes, well, there's the apps and you can go around, and, you know, there's chargers everywhere. Well, that's great. But, those chargers if I want to go sit in the car. Can, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of our tech companies have a bunch of charging stations at every building, but now it's even now people are coming back to work. It's a race to the chargers. Yep. Cause like there's probably literally in, in my building, there's probably 50, 60 Teslas every day. I mean, it's just the community we live in. People yep. have the chargers at home, but, but I mean, we have like 20 chargers here, which is a lot. <laughs> there's literally like one on every building or at least five or six on every floor. Yeah. But now people are, they're running out of chargers at work, which nobody even a year ago, like didn't think it was possible. And now there's just like with the way gas prices went up and everybody's like, well, I'll just go buy a Tesla because I can still go buy those at MSRP. Which you can't do with other cars. Well, we did set a yeah. record at the Tesla dealership here for like the yeah. most money. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it does surprise me. Interesting yeah. dilemma, though. Huh. I like yeah. your take on that. Do you think you'll electrify anything you have just to do it? Like, is there a car you would do that to? I'm not sure. Well, nothing that I have that's currently a running driving car. Um, yeah. I mean, I could see a um, couple possibilities. I have a Jaguar Mark 9 that's. Um, is it has a it needs the engine rebuilt but i also have another jaguar mark 9 that is a running driving car so the one that needs the engine rebuilt could be a good candidate for exploring something like that it's a big heavy car already so putting a bunch of batteries in it and a good sized electric motor wouldn't necessarily hurt the car that much and it has plenty of room for a lot of batteries so that could be an interesting one to do along that line um and it's a pretty much a rust-free shell other than not having a, a functional engine. So could be fun. I think the ones that everybody's yeah. electrifying are H1s. They're taking H1s and because you it, they weigh a ton already, you can put the batteries in them and yeah, they have they're electric. already yep. an, an environmental impact. So <laughs> <laughs> that's not a that's not a bad idea really. No, 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 they probably not. drive a million times better. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. There's a that's couple funny. of series. Yeah. All right. One thing I wanted to ask you about is your vintage racing because I we heard that you're into vintage racing apparently and you have a few cars that you do that with. Of 170, you would think you would. So <laughs> at least one, it should be old. And right? Yeah. yeah. What What are you racing? What are you driving? Right now, um, I'm racing two different cars. So one is a 1963 MGB. It's a old. Um, it's been a race car pretty much almost all of its life, and it was originally built by Huffaker Engineering, who are pretty famous actually for racing MGBs in the late 60s, 1970s, that are, and they they took a lot of championships and things actually with their cars, and so this is an old Huffaker car that has been continually raced in the Pacific Northwest pretty much all of its life, and I've been driving that car um, for about five years now, five, yeah, five or six years. And then my other one is my backup car. Being vintage cars, they tend to break, so especially when you're racing them. So um, my my other car is a 1974 Alfa Romeo GTV. Oh, which, cool! Again, That's I love a hell Alphas, of a backup. So yeah, fantastic, <laughs> nice car to drive. Yeah. So. Wow. I mean, when did you get into racing? I started actually with the MGB about six years ago. Oh. So does does Amy um, does Amy race as well? No. No. Okay. Just you. Okay. No. Very much not her interest in a lot of ways, but th there's a group of us who all go together from Eugene, um, and we all we tend to race in Portland. We've raced in Washington a little bit. We're looking at at some point maybe doing some other trips further afield, but we race a lot in Portland at um, Portland International Raceway, um, Seattle occasionally, um, and we've been racing the last couple times at the Ridge. We'll be back at the Ridge um, early June, so the second weekend in June, um, we'll be racing at the Ridge again in Shelton, Washington. So yeah. fantastic track. Yeah. And a lot of fun. Well, if, she, if you, if Amy ever decides she wants to try it, we just happen to know somebody who's a driving instructor. I don't think our audience can see her on here, but one of our Jesus. Avance writers, members, drivers, yeah. driving instructors is Michelle Graff. 
And so if she needs uh, another woman to hop in the car with, we got a good one for you. No, so, I think yeah. I'm on to Amy. Let's see. You let your husband race, and if he happens to go somewhere, you get 170 cars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, 169. Uh, so, <laughs> go racing, honey. I'll be fine. <laughs> Sign this before you go. What is it? Nothing. It's moving along, moving along, moving along. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Are you going to keep doing that then? Is that something you, I mean, you obviously been doing it for six years. I, you're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Is that something you're going to expand in, I should say, with that many cars? I really enjoy it. Um, I have another car that's been a race car and is SCACA legal race car, which is a Janetta G15, um, which is a, a British former hill climb, fiberglass bodied, um, uh, nice um, little car. It runs off of a Hillman Imp engine, so about a one liter um, motor. But it's a very similar engine to the Coventry Climax motor that they used in a lot of the early Lotuses and things as well. Um, and that's a, a running, driving race car. I could theoretically go out in it. I never have, and I need to do a bit of work on it to set it up for me. Um, the previous owner was lighter than I am, so the suspension is too low for me. I need to actually raise it a little bit in order to be able to like have the um, axle joints and everything line up correctly. So, yeah. I've driven it. It's a lot of fun as a road car, but... Um, it does need a little bit of work if I'm actually going to take it on the track. That and I need to not hit my head against the roll, roll cage. So You know, we learned that. <laughs> actually, yep. in a, uh, from Randy uh, last week, uh, we interviewed uh, Randy Popes. Popes. I always want to yeah. say it wrong. I don't Probst. know what. Sorry. <laughs> and he was talking about hitting his, hitting his head while rolling a car at uh, Road Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. So, or the parts he remembers, at least. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Excellent. Well, I mean, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and taking your time. Uh, we, again, we apologize for being a little late. We had a setup issue, but uh, I guess those of, those listening didn't know that, but they know that now, so that's important. Yeah. So Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> well, must... <laughs> Thank you for being patient. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Not a problem at all. Yes. Well, I love that you epitomize the Avance drive everything. Uh, that really, you'd really do fit this. <laughs> you fit our club very well. So thank you for being a part of it. So. Absolutely. Uh, for this episode of the Avance Podcast, I'm Nick. I'm Dan, and don't just get there. Enjoy the drive. <laughs>